word to describe um, a book in the Bible that had visions and dreams and angels, red, white, black, horsemen, a flying scroll, a measuring line, uh, four horns, um, olive trees, golden lampstands, uh, the Gentile nations being uh, judged, the day of the Lord, the gathering of all nations for a great battle against God, plagues sent out over all the earth, angels sent to the four corners of the earth, the Messiah's kingdom dwelling on earth, a new rebuilt temple, Satan resisting God, earthquakes of judgment, the nation of Israel being delivered and regathered in the land, looking to the Messiah whom they have pierced, the Messiah ruling and reigning on the earth. What book of the Bible would I have described for you? What? Somebody take a guess. Revelation. All right. Well, the answer is no. Zechariah. Did anybody say Zechariah? All right. We had a, we had a couple. Close. And uh, when I was studying that and making the list as I walked through those 14 chapters of the things that you found in this little book, my mind went to the book of Revelation as well. Um, what, a, what an interesting book the book of Zechariah is. Um, why this book? Well, because it's interesting. It's hard. It's hard to understand. There are visions. We're interested in visions and dreams. We like the, 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 uh, um, the, those types of things that, that kind of come out. Flying scrolls. I mean, what book are you going to find that's going to be a flying scroll throughout the air? When it talks about angels and chariots and horsemen and colors of horsemen and going to the four corners of the earth and um, temple and rebuilt temple and the millennial kingdom and eschatology and prophecy. All of those types of things that interest us at times that um, people put a lot of time in when it comes to the books such as Daniel and to the book of um, Revelation and often maybe in places such as Ezekiel and a few other places like Isaiah and um, in, in some places like that. However, packed into 14 chapters, this book of Zechariah is a very unique and um, a book. And I'd like to tackle it on Wednesday nights. I've I, I been praying about this, collecting some books over the last year or so and praying about this book. I have a personal uh, plan that I'd like to preach through all 12 of the minor prophets in my, in my ministry. And I have, I think, two left. Hosea, Zechariah, well, uh, Zephaniah. So three Three that are left that I've not preached through. And, um, and I've saved some of these towards the end. Especially the book of Zechariah. Um, because it's, it's not an easy book to read. To, uh, to interpret. And uh, to understand. However, it's, it's kind of one of those tricks. Do you? Uh, not tricks. It's one of those things that as a pastor you struggle with. Pastor Ben asked me in the hallway as I was kind of collecting books and was doing some reading. He was asking what the next series was going to be on Wednesday night. And, um, and he said, how many sermons have you got with it? And uh, I said, well, just one. That's tonight. Okay. <laughs> um, and I said, the trick thing about oftentimes preaching is um, when, when you come to places like this, do you just give an overview? I could probably overview the whole book in a couple of, um, in a couple of lessons However, there are eight visions in this book between chapters 1 and chapter 6. 
There are questions in chapter 7 and 8. And then from chapter 9 to 14, there is so much prophecy specifically about the millennial kingdom, the first coming and the second coming of Christ in the latter portion of the book of Zechariah. If we're going to really understand the book itself, we've, we've got to be willing to tackle some of those visions and those hard passages in places that... Um, especially if we're going to interpret it a right way. Because if we work through a book like this and just flippantly, and one of the things I can do is I can just tell you of all the research and the study that I've done, what the passages mean, but not explain to you how I got to that conclusion. That doesn't necessarily help you to walk away to know for yourself other than just accepting my word for it. And I want you to be students of God's word so that when you come to prophetic scripture and you come to hard interpretation, especially when there are people, good people, who have different leanings or different interpretations about prophecy, that you can defend um, your view and, uh, and what our church would hold, not because I say it, but because you have seen how we've come to those conclusions. And when you do that... That just means it's going to take a little bit more time. So that's going to mean on Wednesday nights you're going to have to bring your Bible. And you're going to have to bring your thinking cap. And you're going to have to be willing to, to walk through some, some things that could be potentially difficult. Because I'm telling you, if, if you don't have a good understanding of the book of Zechariah, such as this, then when you come to the book of Revelation, then, then your method of interpretation and your hermeneutic and your understanding of some of those things is going to be difficult. in under But if you have a view of understanding in the Old Testament, prophecies and, and, and these prophetic passages, then when you come to the book of Revelation, you're already prepared in your interpretation and in your hermeneutic and your understanding of how to interpret um, the, the, uh, uh, the apocalyptic type literature. So there's, this is a book for sure that has been... Um, uh, confused, misunderstood, and neglected. In fact, of a lot of the, uh, of the pastors and preachers, both broader on, um, on the radio and online, and in a smaller fashion to some of those that I know personally and have been under their ministry, very rarely have I, I, I don't know if I could find anyone uh, outside of one that I found today that I regularly listen to that has ever preached through the book of Zechariah. I've heard passages from it. I've heard scriptures that have been used from it, but I've not heard a series through it. And um, so this is my first time being able to tackle this. I do have a lot of notes, and so I have walked through this before, my personal study and some things like that, but not in a preaching fashion. So, to, to do that, we've got to do a little bit of introductory work. And I know everybody, when you come to introductory work, you just, you just kind of glaze over when we start talking about history and context. However, part of understanding the minor prophets, this is one of the reasons I like the minor prophets, is because you have to know Israel's history, where they fit, to be able to understand the message that's going to come out. Some of the minor prophets are only one chapter. And there's not a whole lot of explanation. Um, some of them, like the book of Zechariah, gives you six verses of introductory and the rest is apocalypse. Visions and dreams and angels and measuring rods and temples and messiahs and, and, and 
um, and all of those types of things. So there's not a whole lot of contextual history in this book itself. However, it is connected with some other books that give us some good background and understanding. So when we think about the man Zechariah in the first place, it is interesting that his name means Jehovah remembers. Jehovah remembers. There are 29 men in the Bible named Zechariah. Different men named Zechariah. It is a popular Jewish name. Okay. Like John and Mary. All right. Um, it, it is a popular name. And so sometimes um, there can be some confusion about uh, these Zacharias, who they are and um, and different. But his name means Jehovah remembers. And this is a name that was popular among Jewish fathers and mothers. They wanted their children to be named Jehovah remembers. Because if you read through a whole lot of Old Testament, you'll recognize the Jewish people don't want to be forgotten by God. Whether they're in Exodus in Egypt, or they're wandering around in the wilderness, or they're in the time of the judges where there's no king and every man's doing right in their own eyes, or they're in the time of the kings when there's wicked kings and, um, and, and good kings, and then there's another bad king and another four bad kings. And, uh, and then all of a sudden there's judgment and then um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes on the scene and the Assyrians come on the scene and, and they get taken back into Babylon into captivity. Parents, Jewish parents who were following the scripture wanted to be reminded that God does not forsake them. God does not forget them. And isn't that often what we want the Lord? Lord, don't forget me when things get hard. Don't forget me when you, you start planning your prophetic calendar. Don't forget me that there's a plan for me too. And, and so this name appears very often. And actually the name of Zechariah will overshadow this book as well. As God will remind in hope and comfort that he has not forgotten his people. Remember, this is the second to the last book in the Old Testament. There will be 400 Silent years of history between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. And what is one of the last messages that God will give his people just before Malachi finishes up in about 450 B.C.? Zechariah comes on the scene and, and gives a message that is filled, 14 chapters, that is filled with nothing but prophecy. God has not forgotten because in the next 400 years, you're not going to receive a prophet. You're not going to see the Messiah. You're, not going, to, you're going to be thrown into the Gentile worlds, the Romans, the Greeks, the Persians. They're all going to take over the world. And little Israel is going to be overpowered. Take this with you. For the next 400 years, God has not forgotten you. What an interesting passage that would come out. So if you're in Zechariah... And look at verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son, the son of Bekiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying. Now, if we just get a, a glimpse here, there's, there's a little bit of family history. There's some family heritage. His grandfather was named Ido. Ido is mentioned in a couple other books, the book of Nehemiah and the book of Esther or Ezra. Uh, he was a priest. He's mentioned in Nehemiah 12 and verse 1 from the tribe of Levi. He, he is the grandfather of Zechariah and he's a grandfather to be proud of. 
Because if you read Nehemiah 12 and Ezra 4 and 5, you realize that Ida was a man as a priest who chose to go back with God's people back to Jerusalem and help rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. He was a man that volunteered to leave his home, leave his land, sell his stuff in Babylon and Persia, and go all the way back to Israel to, to see God work because God had not forgotten his people. This means, if we're placing, if we, if we see where this time frame is going to place, then that means Zechariah was born and raised in Babylon during the 70 years captivity that, that Jeremiah would prophesy. So, between 586, when Daniel is taking into captivity into Babylon and, um, in, and Jerusalem and Solomon's temple is burned to the ground, during the 500s BC, this is around the time that Zechariah is born. We also know, because he's listed in Nehemiah chapter 12, that Zechariah is also a priest. He is a priest in line with his grandfather as a priest. And then he is mentioned as well in returning in the list of names in, in Nehemiah and Ezra. So interesting, of, of all the prophets in the Old Testament, there are only three of them that were both prophet and priest. That would be Jeremiah, that would be Ezekiel, and Zechariah. They held a dual office. They, they were able to be, they were, they, they were in the line of, of being a priest, a prophet, and, um, and also a, a family heritage. Now, one of the questions is, uh, where is, um, what, what happened to his dad? Because we have the name that is listed for us in the first verse. He's the son of Berechiah. And Berechiah is not mentioned in Nehemiah or Ezra. Only Ido is mentioned uh, as going. Most have indicated that probably that his father passed away and Zechariah was being raised or was raised by his grandfather. Possibly in line as the next priest. So grandfather passed his father to Zechariah. So Zechariah being listed with his grandfather in Nehemiah 12 and verse 4 and Ezra 5. Now, tradition states this. If you just look at this, tradition states that Jewish tradition, so this is going back to first century, um, Jewish tradition states that Zechariah was part of the original great council of 120 men who were led by Nehemiah and presided over by Ezra. This would mean that Zechariah would have been an old man under the life and ministry of Nehemiah and Ezra in about 450 B.C., now, this group was known as the elders when Israel returned from captivity back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple and Nehemiah came back to rebuild the walls. A group of, of religious leaders, many of them were priests, they were called elders, they established a group and their responsibility was to protect and keep the Old Testament scrolls. That was what they were to do. They were to gather them together, put them in the temple, and they were to protect them. And Ezra was one of the leaders of that group. The writing and preserving and protecting the scrolls. Now this is just tradition that, that would state this. But the fact is that group later became known by Jesus' day 
as the great Jewish Sanhedrin. They were a group of religious leaders who were stationed in Jerusalem, who were centered around the temple, who would be what we would call in our day the Supreme Court. And there was a group of them and a number of them. They were the elders. And this, this goes all the way back to about the time of Nehemiah and Ezra and during the intertestamental period. We don't see the Sanhedrin in the Old Testament. They don't come up. The reason they don't come up is because they didn't exist. But the seeds of them begin to come up. But by the time you get to the first century in Matthew, all of a sudden you have this group called the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin. It's like, where did they come from? No, they're not mentioned in the Old Testament. No, they're not. They're groups that began to be established uh, during that intertestamental period. And so if tradition would hold back that Zechariah was one of the original elders, part of that group that later on became the Sanhedrin. Um, now, it's interesting. I'll give you a little map here. If you can see this map, I think is good. I think I've, I've printed this map off a few times when we're dealing with the minor prophets. Um, and if you want a copy of this, if you're new and you don't have a copy in your Bible or so, this is really helpful when you're reading the prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, this kind of helps you with the time frame. Seven, nine, seventy um, would be the dividing of the um, around the time of Solomon. Nine thirty is the dividing of the two kingdoms under Solomon's son Rehoboam that divided into the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, and the two and a half tribes of the southern tribes that became known as Judah. Both lines ended up having sets of kings. And, um, and there was a civil war that was fought constantly, a battle, and God sent prophets to each, the northern and the southern. If you see several of the prophets that were sent to the northern kingdom in Israel and several prophets that were sent to the southern kingdom in Judah. And then you walk through a timeline. Remember in B.C., you count backwards. All right. We're going towards one. So the farther you go, the higher number you go in, uh, in before Christ. And so as we are counting towards Christ, counting down in the history of the Old Testament, this would be a chronology of where those prophets fit. Pre-exilic, that would be if you were seeing this, these would be all of the prophets that, that uh, prophesied before the exile. Then you have exilic prophets, that would be prophets who prophesied during the exile. That would be Daniel, Ezekiel, and then Jeremiah uh, overlaps. And then you have prophets who are considered post-exilic. This would be after the return of Israel back to the nation of Israel. And that happened in about 536. And then you have the two prophecies of these three last books, the Old Testament, Zechariah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi as post-exilic prophets. So you can kind of see uh, where these, uh, these are the last few books in the Old Testament. And they come in the timeline of the last three books um, that are given in, um, in, our Hebrew, in, uh, in our English Bible. It's not that order in the Hebrew Bible. If uh, you're wanting to ask, ask that, you can ask Pastor Ben. He had to take Hebrew. And then this is another map. This is just a different chart showing the same thing, just in a little different way. However, it does highlight the, the, the nations who were in control of the time um, and uh, the empires, the Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. And you can see that with the exilic, um, pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic, and where, how they end up. Both of these maps I put back to back and ha have them as a handout. If you're interested in that, that oftentimes will help you. But just highlighting this, I want you to notice the two names that are here together. Haggai 
and Zechariah. Notice there are three books down here. They're not found in the prophets, technically, after Isaiah. You would find these before the book of Psalms, okay? They're um, in the book of history, and, and that would be after First and Second Kings. You have Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And, uh, but they take place during an overlap of the last three prophets. So that just kind of sees you if you're, uh, if you're often wondering how history uh, plays out in the prophets. That's why oftentimes these, these minor and major prophets in the history of Israel is kind of confusing and people get lost and a lot of misunderstanding of, of what's going on. But for us to be able to understand the message that's coming out of this book, we see it in the timeline very close to the end of the canon of the Old Testament scripture during a, a time of captivity and return. So that gives you a little bit of history as uh, uh, along with that. Now I just want to mention a couple things here that Haggai and Zechariah, as they lived around the same time, uh, one was an older man, if I could just mention that, the other uh, was a younger man. This is interesting because Zechariah would have grown up in Babylon much like Daniel and Ezekiel. That meant that he grew up in the courts of the Gentile, learning their language, learning and being educated in the Babylonian schools, being dressed like in, like in, in Babylon and Persia. And as a, as a young man, he decided with his grandfather to return to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel and during the time of the Medo-Persians and um, of, of that time that would, that would happen there. Now, as I mentioned this here, just I would say this. Um, tradition, um, well, there, there is um, some texts of scripture that would indicate that, that Zechariah was the one who was killed and murdered between the altar in the temple. In Matthew 23, in verse 35, Jesus gave Zechariah and his father's name, Berechiah, in that he said, from the prophets, Abel to Zechariah. Abel who was murdered and Zechariah who was murdered between the altars in, in the temple. And uh, the problem is there are three Zacharias in the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles 24 and verse 20 through 22, there's a three verses that mentions a Zechariah who ended up being taken and stoned in the court of the temple. All right. However, that event in 2 Chronicles 24 happens in 800 B.C., 300 years before this Zechariah lived. And the, the complicated thing is his father's name, the one in Second Chronicles, and this guy's father's name that is mentioned in this passage is similar. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's the same. And so there's, there's a conflict. Is Jesus talking about the Second Chronicle 24, Zechariah, who happens to have a similar dad name? That'd be like, you know, um, William and John. How many Williams and John are in any English family? If you go back far enough, there's a lot of them, all right? And uh, those, are, those are names, and oftentimes those names are juniors, and they, they pass them on. So, however, some have indicated that Jesus is talking about the Second Chronicles 24. I believe that Jesus was speaking of Zechariah here. 
However, it's not recorded. Jesus would be the only one that would record that event for us. Um, and it seems to indicate that eventually Zechariah died a martyr's death in the temple, being stoned between the altar. And uh, that would give you enough information that Zechariah was, um, was a very bold uh, prophet of God. And uh, just a little bit more history here. Um, in 550, uh, around the time of 550 BC, Cyrus the Great um, became king of the Medo-Persians. And he was the one who ended up conquering the Babylonians and uh, conquering the known world. In 536, Cyrus signed a decree allowing the exiled Jews to return back to their homeland to rebuild their temple and their city, Jerusalem. This was promised and prophesied by the prophet Daniel a hundred years before, by name of who it would be and the time of the 70-year captivity and the returning of God's people. That's why, um, so Jeremiah prophesied of this event that would happen long after his death and it came about during this time that Cyrus was raised up by God to allow the Jewish people to return to their land. If you want to read some of that history, Nehemiah records that history. Nehemiah chapter 12, the book of Nehemiah and Ezra both record the returning of, of God's people from captivity back to Jerusalem to uh, rebuild the city. And then the book of, um, uh, of Nehemiah who comes back to rebuild the walls of, uh, of the city as well. And so that just gives you a little bit of history. During this time, Zerubbabel is the one who leads the return. He's the governor. He's the leader. He, he returns to rebuild the temple. And at first, everything went well. Uh, everything started, in fact, they say that the altar was built within just a couple months. They were already reinstated the sacrifices and, um, and the Jewish people were sacrificing the lambs again, restated under the, the new priest of Joshua who was there. Zerubbabel was leading. They laid the foundation of the temple and uh, started to rebuild. And everything was going well until Ezra chapter uh, 4 and verse 5 records that there was opposition to the project from a group of people called Samaritans. The group of people that Samaritans, they lived in Samaria. And in Ezra chapter 4, the Samaritan group, they were a group of people who were living in Israel, in Samaria, while the Jewish people were in Babylon and Persia. They, had been, they were a group of people who had intermarried. They were Jews and Gentiles who intermarried together and lived in, um, in Israel during that time. So get this, you get a group of Jews who've returned from Babylon under a decree from Cyrus to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, take over the land again. But there is a group of mixed Jews called Samaritans who live in the land and they don't like what Zerubbabel and the Jews are doing by rebuilding because that means they're going to take their lands, they're going to move back in. And because they were of mixed marriages, 
that was looked down upon in the Old Testament, obviously, and that was an issue. That's why when you get to the New Testament and you have this group of Samaritans who are looked down upon by the Jews, and Jesus uses the Samaritans because there was already for 400, 500 years now, this group hated one another, and they lived right over top of one another, but they didn't want anything to do with each other. And the reason is, is because in Ezra, the Samaritans rise up against the ones who are building the temple and that they start to fight. And this opposition um, discourages uh, under Zerubbabel the building of the temple and it stops. They abandon it. They give up when things get hard. Ezra chapter 5 records that it took 16 years that the project was abandoned. There was no interest. During this time, they built their homes. They made their farms. They, they produced the crops from the land. And they began to be comfortable in their lives while the temple was not finished. The altar was no longer on their minds. The temple was no longer on their minds. Now they were back into the land. They were enjoying their own houses and their own vacations and their own um, enjoyment. But yet God's house was left in ruins. So, after 16 years, God raised up two prophets. The first one was Haggai. And Haggai was to come on the scene and he was to rebuke the Jewish people for their complacency in living in their comfortable homes while the temple of God laid in ruins. God provided for you to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to make the sacrifices. And now just a little bit of hardship from the Samaritans and you decide to quit and decide to forget the project and we'll just live in our comfortable lands. And Haggai comes on the scenes and he preaches four messages. That's the book previous to this. Four hard messages and a revival comes to the land. And after just a couple months, they start back on the building project and they finish the temple. And as they are finishing the temple and building this project, two months after Haggai starts his message and revival gets started, there's a little bit of discouragement that sets in because as they see the current temple that they're building and they remember the old temple of Solomon and all this gold and silver and all of this great stuff that is happening, they get discouraged because they look at this little bitty meager temple that doesn't have a whole lot of gold and silver that just covers a little bit of area. And they start to get discouraged and they say, you know what, this doesn't seem to be all that great. Maybe this project is not as grand as we thought it would be. And they get kind of discouraged. So during this process, when they're kind of discouraged as they're putting the bricks on the temple and they've gotten back to the work and then they realize how small their current temple is, God sends another prophet onto the scene to remind them God remembers even the small things. And that's Zechariah. God has a plan. So Zechariah's book is really about rallying the troops. Zechariah comes on the scene as they're carrying the bricks up there with sad faces saying, you know what, this doesn't seem as exciting as what we thought it would be in prophecy. The, the Messiah is going to come back and he's going to see this little place and the, the walls are broken down. Nehemiah hadn't come yet. It's not even protected and we're vulnerable. We've got the enemy that is out here. It just seems like this is not worth doing anymore. 
And Zechariah comes on the scene to encourage us. It was a time that God had sent Haggai and Zechariah to prophesy. They were to stir up the people of God to get back to the work. And it helped. Their ministry resulted in the people getting back to the work. And the temple and the altar were finished. After 16 years of it being abandoned. Zechariah and Haggai together as dual evangelists. One's the old guy. And the other is the young guy. Interesting how God uses two generations. And he gives them a similar message to come and rouse the people up. And they do that. So the work of Zechariah is largely a work of rousing the people. Stop being indifferent and scared. And stand up for what you believe in. And get the work accomplished. Uh, his message corresponds to his name. God hasn't forgotten. Don't you forget either. Jehovah remembers. And it seems that Haggai's book was used to start the revival. Where Zechariah's book was used to keep the revival going. For them to finish the job. And these two men together end up being used by God for a great work. Now I want to just kind of focus here in, uh, in this. I, I notice what Eugene Merrill says this. With his eyes on both the temporal task at hand. And the eschatological day to come. He challenges the members of the restored remnant. To go to work with full understanding. That what they do. As feeble as it appears. Will be crowned with success. When Yahweh. True to his covenant word. Will bring to pass the fulfillment of his ancient promises to his fathers. I like what one Author indicated that Zechariah seems to be a prophet that had his one foot in the here and now and another foot in the future. And he properly balanced the things that what is to come and what we're doing here and now. And don't get discouraged just because it seems like what you're doing is not making a difference. God has a big plan. And part of that big plan is your little bitty work. And even though your little work and your little home and your little family and your little area of, of the world may not seem all that big. In the grand scheme of the picture of what God is doing. He takes those little works and fits them in his masterpiece in his master plan and says well done thy good and faithful servant. And I, and I wonder if that is a message that is not appropriate for us today. Because it seems like in a world that has gone AWOL. In what we are doing and our numbers that may potentially to us seem like they are dwindling and getting smaller. When truth is no longer being followed like we once see. When, when maybe what we see in our little world is not making as much of a difference as what we thought. That maybe God is more interested in the missionaries overseas or, or in the world wars that are taking place or in the political leaders that's going on and all the big stuff that's going on. What would God care about my little home and my little job and my little ministry and my little Sunday school class and my little program of what I do? Maybe God really doesn't care. What is it making any difference? And Zechariah comes on the scene and says... It makes all of the difference because God is interested in every brick that you put onto the temple. God is interested in every part because he has this big long plan. 
of what he's going to do in time and space. And you ought, to, you ought to take joy that God decides to take you out as a little puzzle piece and put you in a part of his big plan. And the joy that we have. So, as Zechariah deals with, history, with, with both history and the future blessings of what God is going to do, this book is a comfort of hope that what we are doing does count for eternity when we do it for Christ. So don't get discouraged by the Gentile powers. Don't get discouraged by the people around you who hate you. Don't get downhearted when it doesn't seem like you're making much of a difference. Your little work in your little town, in your little church, in your little family, in the midst of 8 billion people in this world, you matter to God. The method by which Zechariah gives this message, the bulwark of his 14 chapters comes through visions, dreams, and oracles of the future. This book is often called the Apocalypse of the Old Testament. However, interesting enough, it is very messianic. This book, if we were going to put it all about one person, this book is filled with Jesus, the Messiah. He's on every page, every chapter, every page, Jesus appears. He is called the servant in chapter 3 and verse 8. He is called the man in chapter 6 and verse 12. The branch, the king in chapter 6, 13. The priest, the true shepherd. In the latter portion of the book, his betrayal by 30 pieces of silver is mentioned in chapter 11. His wounds are recorded as they will look on him and who they pierced. His crucifixion will be prophesied in chapter 12 and verse 10. His suffering in chapter 13 and verse 7. His glorious second coming as king of kings in 14 and verse 4. His name is revealed in 14 and verse 9 and 20. And his victory over a battle with all the nations of the world that will gather together against him. And he will come out as victor in chapter 14 and verse 2. Schofield noted this in his Schofield notes on this book. No Old Testament prophet has more prophecy concerning Christ in, in such a short book. His second coming, his first coming, his reign, his priesthood, his kingship, his humanity, his deity, his temple, his lowliness as he comes. He will bring peace, his rejection, his betrayal, his returning as king of kings and lord of lords. All told in this small book. Interesting that this book of vision and dreams and signs and angelic visions in the voice of God. It's ironic that Zechariah would be one of the last books of the Old Testament before 400 silent years that will happen. They will take this book with them into those silent years until John the Baptist comes on the scene and says, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a book that is filled with Christ and Messiah. And it takes a little bit of interpretation. It takes a little bit of eyes to see. It takes the Holy Spirit to be able to give us illumination on what we're reading. Um, there's a lot of angels. There's a lot of things that are kind of uh, interesting. There's lampstands. There's olive trees. There's plumb lines. There's temples that are built. There's chariots of fire. Um, there's all kinds of things that are seen within this book. And yet it is a very important 
and, uh, and great book to encourage God's people in light of what is to come. And uh, I think that that just is an introduction. We'll get into the first six verses next week and see as the Lord comes and gives this prophecy. The overarching of this message is that God is displeased and he wants his people to repent. A message that will be upon their mind as the Old Testament canon closes and as uh, John the Baptist comes on the scene in Matthew. Father, I pray as we close tonight, Lord, a lot of... A lot of uh, context and history as kind of taken in in a, in a short amount of time. Uh, Lord, this, this book is a challenge. It's a challenge to read through. It's, uh, it's a challenge to understand. Uh, but I believe with discipline and with the desire of your, of your people who, who are willing to rightly divide the word of truth and, uh, and, and to read... And to, and to see the scripture, compare scripture with scripture, that, um, uh, Lord, you've got a message here for us. And much of this uh, book is still yet fulfilled. And, Lord, what we see in the book of Revelation is going gonna, is gonna to come out in fulfillment of these prophecies that were prophesied uh, 500 years before Jesus was ever born. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would, in light of the scripture and knowing the truth, that you've not forgotten us. And you, would, you have not forgotten your people. Even today, one day they will be regathered in the land. And uh, you love them and you care for them, even, with, even though they are in blindness and, and darkness. And that even though the small things that we are involved in, we get discouraged about. If we will just be obedient and repent... And follow God's word and be faithful to the task that you've called us. Even though it may seem little and insignificant. It fits in your plan of redemption and your plan of restoration of this whole world. To point back to Jesus Christ. And we are going to be a part of that. Our church and, and your people are going to be a part of that. To be able to see these scenes played out one day in the future. And thank you for that. That you've chosen by your son to give us um, that salvation that we can, we can be a part of your big plan to, um, to bring all things back under your feet. Bless us as we go tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you for your patience. And may God bless you this week as you serve him.